Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This is a, a special event, a standalone Body Serve <laughs> episode in the vein of our Pride special last year. And it, it has to do with open-era tennis. Or rather, pre-open-era tennis. How did we get here? Yeah, because a lot of the discourse in the last year or two with respect to Serena Williams's so-called alleged chase of Margaret Court's 24 slams has brought up a lot of talk about open era, pre-open era with respect to Margaret Court and the validity of her record. This episode will not deal with that necessarily, but more so give a window into what tennis was like in the pre-open era and uh, give folks an idea of how they can make comparisons should they choose to do so. Right. You know, what has happened in tennis in those first 90 to 100 years that we almost never talk about? Because I think we have such a recency bias in tennis and because the early years of tennis were so devoid of reliable statistics and there was such a, a mishmash of organizations, I wanted to understand better what was the first century of the sport like? Who played it? How? Under what conditions? But for Bud Collins's Encyclopedia of Tennis, we really do not have a linear history of tennis in all forms that it existed in. Right. So I think unlike a lot of sports, it is almost impossible to compare eras in tennis because of not only technology and nutrition and fitness, but because the structures and the organizations that govern tennis have changed so profoundly. Also because the best players in certain parts of tennis history weren't playing on the biggest stages as we now view them to be, with specific reference to the pro tours on the men's tour in the pre-open era. We had all these grand slams that were being contested with seriously depleted fields because the best players were not competing in those events. They weren't allowed to compete in those events. And what was particularly interesting for me was even those amateurs that were playing Wimbledon, US Open, French Open at that time, they would tell you, look, we are not the best players in the world. But in today's viewing of tennis history, we look back at someone's worth, whether or not they can be considered in the greatest of all time debates based solely, really, on their Grand Slam win tallies. And one of the the things that we discovered for ourselves, because I'm sure a lot of folks already know this, is that that's a, a foolhardy way of looking at tennis history. And it really allows a lot of great players to slip through the cracks and not get the due that they deserve. Many of whom we'll talk about coming up. We, we posed kind of like a set of questions before we set out to research. The research brought up even more questions. This episode is by no means exhaustive, but we wanted to give a rundown, kind of what tennis looked like, why it looked that way, and what were the forces that made it change closer to what we know now. Along the lines of disclaimers, as we did with our Pride special, we're not here to present this as original thought original ideas as the first people to do this research. It is just stuff that interested us, and hopefully we can present it in a way that while it isn't new, 
it is interesting, especially in this medium. What was the first question that we had written down? The first question was, what was amateurism and why did it exist? I think before we set out to answer that question, let's start in the 13th century when people were still playing jeu de pomme, which was basically like tennis, but with your hands. That sounds really exciting, doesn't it? You make do with what you've got. (laughs) Tennis was an indoor sport for centuries, even before it was tennis. In 1583, supposedly, the first racket was invented in Italy, and jeu de pomme evolved into a racket sport that was still played inside courts among the most wealthy and aristocratic in Europe. It wasn't until 1873 that lawn tennis was possibly invented that date has been disputed quite a bit two things always get disputed when you look at the history of any sport the date at which it was invented because really who can know Mm -hmm. and also where it was invented i guess there's a third one and by whom yes every sport you have these fables of wow there was this combustive moment where the game sprung forth and now we have this great thing the myth of baseball is probably the, the most famous beginning myth in all of sport. In 1877, the first Wimbledon Championships was held. Only men. Seven years later, in 1884, the women were invited to participate as well. And tennis slowly grew from around the late 20s into the 60s. You have what a lot of people refer to as this golden era of tennis, when true tennis celebrities were starting to be born. And in 1968, in Bournemouth, England, the first open tennis tournament was played ever, and the sport has never been the same. The reason why we asked the question, what was amateurism and why did it exist, is because it is kind of the framework through which we view the push for open era tennis. Why we still look at records as being pre-open era and post-open era. Right, for most of the 20th century, Only amateurs were allowed to participate at the Grand Slams, which is the metric we use now to judge who is the greatest and who is not. There was a separate set of quote-unquote pro slams that only professionals participated in that we really don't talk about at all now. But starting in the late 1800s with the Olympic movement, there was this revival of kind of the virtue of amateurism. Every professional sport went through this, this grappling of amateurism versus professionalism and how to integrate the two and how to move forward into a modern professional sporting world. Some sports achieve that sooner than others. Tennis got in its own way for decades, whereas golf had already incorporated professionals into its uh, sporting superstructure. Tennis lagged behind for decades. Amateurism initially, before the modern Olympics, was in effect a means to keep the classes separate, frankly. It was believed, or I should say the myth was propagated, that in order to maintain fair play in tennis, you had to keep the sport in the upper classes. It was a sport that was played in prep schools and universities by folks who did not have to work to sustain a living. And the idea was the lower classes, the working classes, those who had to work at the shop to put food on the table, they wouldn't be able to 
maintain the integrity of the sport should they be allowed to play. Which if you're sitting at home listening to this and you think it sounds like a crock of whatever expletive you want to use, that is the case. (laughs) (laughs) But also remember that this idea, especially within the Olympic movement, is not that old and was only officially banned in 1988 when all sports were allowed to invite professionals to play in the Olympics. And many did not follow suit. You're talking about amateurism being put to rest. Yeah. But we're talking about the definition of what an amateur was at certain times and the the ideology behind it. Mm -hmm. So when the modern Olympic movement was birthed by Pierre de Coubertin in the last few years of the 19th century, the way an amateur was defined changed. As you said, at one time, an amateur meant someone who played their sport and didn't play or didn't participate in any occupation to earn money. These were people who were independently wealthy, were from rich families, and this is what they did. They played sports because it was a pastime they loved, which is where the word amateur comes from, from Latin to French. But the IOC in 1892, when they were planning the first Olympics, the first modern Olympics in Athens, ruled that an amateur could include anyone who worked as long as they didn't profit from their sport. So previously when it was a case of if you work any job, you can't play tennis, because we're talking about tennis here specifically, it then shifted to, well, you can work and still play tennis, but you can't make money from playing tennis. And this was a kind of a liberalization, believe it or not, of the concept of what an amateur is. Esteemed historian Alan Gutman He wrote that through most of the 20th century, amateurism was defended with the argument that fair play and good sportsmanship are possible only when sports are an athlete's avocation, never his or her vocation. Very succinct. Yes, learned a new word. I did not know what avocation meant. Still kind of don't. You get the gist. You're a smart smart dude. (laughs) Yes, context clues. But the idea that profit made fair play and sportsmanship impossible. That if you were playing something for money, you could not play in a way that was honorable. And that's what I mean when I say the virtue of amateurism. There was something moral about it, and that money somehow besmirched the sport. What we know is that throughout the history of all sport, there have been people making money off of sport from a structural level. So even with this setup, with the modern Olympic movement, we know that the IOC was making tons of money off the backs of these amateurs. Yes. And we know that throughout much of the 20th century, right up until 1968, when tennis became open, the structures that be, be it the International Lawn Tennis Federation, now known as the ITF, they took out the L out of it. All these governing structures made money off of amateurs. The the scam here was that they made it seem the public believe that if the actual people who were producing the product were to benefit from it, then that would somehow besmirch the reputation of the sport. And it's still something that Does we... that sound like something today? The in... NCAA? I think that is, that, where that is what I was going for. And you know that these, <laughs> these people in power were cutting backroom deals, lining their pockets. They were having to line the pockets of amateur players under the table to maintain their product. It was all a large scam. (laughs) Now, as I said, in 1988, the Olympic Committee finally rules to allow professionals 
to participate in the Olympics in any sport. Not every sporting association allowed professionals to play, however. And you see that in boxing. Uh, this is the rule that allowed the NBA to field a dream team in the 1992 Olympics. That was the first time that could ever happen in the modern Olympics. Interestingly, the ancient Olympics, this was not an issue. They, they really didn't care about amateurism. It wasn't really a concept. This idea of uh, the modern idea of an amateur is really an Anglo-American invention. It's a Victorian kind of upper middle class ideology. So now that we have a bit of a grounding on what amateurism was, what did tennis look like in its first 90 years or so? It's a very small question. <laughs> I know, right? Well, so there was a pretty strict delineation between amateurs and pros. On the amateur side, you have the four Grand Slams by 1905. Australia was the last one to start. You have Davis Cup, which was started in 1900. And at the time, Davis Cup was really just a few major world empires facing off against each other. So you have the British Isles, quote-unquote, slash Great Britain, France, England, Australia. Well, Australia wasn't really an empire. You have three massive imperial powers and Australia playing each other. And no country other than those four won Davis Cup until 1974 when South Africa won for the first time. It makes sense to me doing this research that the Australian Open, French Open, Wimbledon, and the US Open were the four big amateur tournaments because those four countries fielded the most successful Davis Cup teams. The correlation between the two cannot be ignored. I don't know if that's scientific. I didn't see anything in the research that necessarily spoke to that, but that's something I deduce. It's impossible to overstate the influence of Davis Cup for most of the 20th century in tennis. It compelled a lot of talented players to remain an amateur so they could continue to play Davis Cup. And I think you can see historically that this is, it started before World War I. There were two world wars within 25 years of each other where nations were fighting for nationalism in many ways. And now that we've entered sort of this post-nationalist world in the 21st century, it's hard to understand like what that was like, what that patriotism felt like, how important it was not only for these associations, but their players to have that sense of glory and honor playing for their country. Because before the mass professionalization of sport around the world, one of the key ways that sport was used on a global level was for nationalistic propaganda. We saw that in particular, probably most spectacularly in the 1936 Olympics with the Americans attempting to squash Hitler's Nazi regime in Germany. And so it's against that backdrop where playing for country is the way that you can most prove your worth in your sport because you're not being paid. As an amateur, you cannot become a top earner. You can't be rich from playing your sport. The way you can gain riches is from striking out and making a mark for your country. Right. That is the that is the story of amateur sport on a global level in the first half of the 20th century. And that's where Davis Cup factors in. And it's one of the things that gets lost in the last 20 years or so as Davis Cup kind of 
struggled and meandered along to its ultimate death last year. Well, a point of fact, it is still alive. It's just very much well, different. In its in its most well-known iteration. Yeah. That no longer exists. Right. Because that was a structure that was birthed from nationalistic beginnings. Right. And and as we go through this, you can see through the changes in tenants, you can see how much the world is a different place than when we started in 1877. Players would forego large swaths of tournaments. You'd have what would normally be a European swing where you'd go and play four or five tournaments in the spring. And they'd say, the Federation would say, oh no, you're not going to play those. You're going to go off to this location and train for Davis Cup instead. Right, right. And so as the 20th century marches on, you see these imperial powers fall. You see maybe individual people's belief in their country's superiority shaken, or at least less important. And as the professional era dawns in 1968, there are uprisings around the Western world. Paris was in a complete general strike at the very first Roland Garros, the very first open Grand Slam tournament. And what I want to be like a central part of our research going forward is whether these social movements had a huge impact on tennis or at least like what are the conditions that tennis evolves as the world evolves going forward with this episode or in general in general okay (laughs) a point of information at that very first grand slam that was open the 1968 french open over 30 male players it's not that they didn't play they couldn't get to paris to play (laughs) transportation was in such short supply commercial airplanes weren't flying there were players that flew into Belgium and Switzerland and took cars into Paris. Once they got to the city, public transit wasn't working. There was a player who made it to the third round without having to even strike a ball because both players that he was supposed to play couldn't get to Paris. <laughs> but back to the matter at hand. What did tennis look like in the first 90 years? So the men's side, the four Grand Slams, Davis Cup, a bunch of amateur tournaments sprinkled through Europe and North America, on the women's side, we had the four Grand Slams and Fed Cup starting in 1963. There was also this interesting event called Whiteman Cup, which started in 1923 and ran till 1989 for women only. And it was a UK versus USA event, a team event. And it's kind of like the Ashes in tennis, is not that, Australia, of is course. Is that your comparison? That's, yeah, your that's my comparison. comparison. The UK versus US. Yes. It's like... The Ryder Cup? Certainly. But Ryder Cup has Team Europe, right? And Team USA? Yes. Yes. So, as the US dominated thoroughly through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the Whiteman Cup fell out of favor, became less important, less interesting. But that was there. On the professional side of things, it was all a bit more haphazard. There were random tours, there were... They call these barnstorming tours. But there was a little bit of organization attempted to put on the professional tour. And that was in the pro slams or the professional majors. There were three big tournaments in very familiar places that were considered the pro majors. The U.S. Pro Tennis Championships, which at various times were held at Forest Hills. Then the L.A. Tennis Club. Then randomly Cleveland, Ohio. That was the first of the slams, started in 1927. From 1930 to 1967, 
the French Pro Championships were held at Roland Garros. Of course, a few of those were missed due to World War II. And then from 1934 to 1967, the Wembley Championship was held at Wembley Arena on wood. Clearly, this was an attempt to put some regulation, some predictability on the Pro Tour and be able to decide here are the best players. It factored into the Pro Ranking, which was also a bit mysterious. We don't have official rankings for a lot of those years in the Pro Tour. Women did not compete. They did compete one time out of all those years at all those tournaments. In 1960, when Althea Gibson won the U.S. Pro Championships in Cleveland indoors. One of the main reasons for that, and it's something we'll get to later on, is the fact that the majority of the top amateur women did not turn professional. And when they did, there wasn't much of a market or a tour for them to play on because there were so few of them. Right. So you find yourself locked out of the Grand Slams because you've gone pro, but there is really not... Uh, an infrastructure for you to move into. And if you get an initial offer that's maybe lucrative, say you get a $50,000 offer to go play a string of professional matches against one person, it's not sustainable. It's a one-off thing. You collect, you cash in that one time, and then there are no more opportunities. Unlike the men who had this sustained professional tour, mainly run by Jack Kramer. So we know that all the top tennis players that we know in the history of tennis started as amateur tennis players before 1968. What happened to them once they gave up that status to chase some money and become professional? Right. Typically, they would go on this thing called a barnstorming tour. They would sign a contract as a pro. They probably have just come off of some huge win or a string of Wimbledon victories, and they are the challenger, and they'll face off against one of the top pros currently playing. They'll play something like 100, 150 matches over a bunch of different cities over five, six months, always against the same player. And the challenger would always make significantly more than the kind of incumbent, the pro who was at the top. When we look back on the professional tours, the person who's written about most in terms of the promoter is Jack Kramer. It started with Jack Harris around the World War II years. He was then supplanted by Bobby Riggs, somebody who you may be familiar with. And then Jack Kramer then took over the reins as the promoter and the the owner of the professional tour. You talked a little bit about how that setup worked in terms of the barnstorming and having a, a champion and a challenger. Jack Kramer's philosophy with running his tour was that he would have this champion who would be challenged by the top amateur that he could sign and pluck from the amateur ranks. What you ended up having was every year, Jack Kramer was looking to sign the undisputed top amateur player. When Jack Harris was running the tour, Don Budge won the Grand Slam in 38, he signed him. Oftentimes you'd see, if you look back through the course of history and you look at who won maybe two or three slams in one year, that person then became professional the next year. Because beat Harris, beat Bobby Riggs, beat Jack Kramer, they were always coming to Colin, trying to sign that person to then become the challenger to take on the champion for the next year's professional tours. Pancho Gonzalez was the challenger that was signed in the late 40s after he won his two amateur slams. And what was interesting about him and how it 
how you can use his story to frame how this professional tour worked. He kind of underestimated how difficult that whole transition was going to be between the amateur tour and the professional ranks. And so when he turned professional, he was like, okay, I'm going to do this. He ends up losing horribly in his first year to Jack Kramer. And because he loses so badly, he doesn't then become the champion to then be challenged the next year. He becomes discarded. And so somebody who has this promising amateur career at 20 years old, gives it up to chase the money, is now left without a place in amateur or professional tennis. Gonzalez is one of the few people who was able to come back from that. He kind of went away for a few years and then rebuilt his game to the point where he could make a case for himself as a top professional when Jack Kramer was retiring as the champion himself. Mm -hmm. And then that's how he was able to kind of inveigle his way back into the professional tennis setup. Fueled by hatred for Jack Kramer. Mutual hatred. Mm -hmm. And so from Gonzalez in the late 40s to Ken Rosewall to Lou Hode to Rod Laver, all these guys, elsewhere Vines as well, in the late 30s, they win big on the amateur circuit and then they take the immediate payout to become a professional, banking on themselves to then become the champion and be able to have a long career in the professional ranks. An interesting example, I think, from the transition from amateur to pro is Fred Perry, who did so in early 1937. He had just come off of four consecutive Davis Cups. He won three consecutive Wimbledon titles. 1936 was the last time an Englishman won. He decided to go pro. He was convinced by Harpo Marx, of all people, of the Marx brothers, to go pro in an era when it quote-unquote, wasn't done. He's an Englishman, he's beholden to the Lawn Tennis Association, but he said that he never felt really embraced by the LTA and by that sort of Oxbridge set, because he was Northern, he wasn't old money like most of them, and he was kind of hard-headed. Like, he described himself as uncompromising, he wasn't into platitudes, This sounds like the most recent British man to win Wimbledon, doesn't it? Northern, in Scottish in his case, but uh, someone who isn't really down with pleasing uh, the old money fuddy-duddy types of the All England Club. So Fred Perry goes pro and starts this barnstorming tour with the American Ellsworth Vines, who at the time was the top player in the world. Top professional. Yes, but by most accounts, the top player in the world as well. One One of the best of the first half of the 20th century. Perry was guaranteed $100,000 for five and a half months of work, which in 1937, you can imagine, was a whole shitload of money. And apparently he made quite a bit more than that. He and Vines toured for 20 years. They played around 350 matches, which he insisted were never fixed. They were always competitive and above board. You can see how these questions pop up, right? Especially when Jack Kramer was running the Pro Tour, but he was also playing on the Pro Tour. (laughs) The questions of integrity. The questions of conflicts of interest are embedded in the history of tennis. Indeed. Because if you have this (laughs) tour that's running hundreds of matches, how do you keep public interest when the head-to-head by May is 100 
to 20. Right. And and you did see that often. You often saw the top pro just blow away the challenger. And Lou Hode talked about that when he went pro in the late 50s, that he was wiped off the map in her his first tour, which is an argument to say that it wasn't fixed. Something that was interesting is that Fred Perry, the British hero, the record holder, was stripped of his membership in the All England Club as soon as he went pro. Suzanne Langlois was also stripped of her membership in the late 20s, and it was reinstated in 1949, but you can see the, the disdain and distaste that the old guard tennis people held for professionalization. It's not just that. You had to have stakes involved and make examples of people to maintain your product. Right. If you are the gatekeepers of amateur tennis, you can't just have people leaving the ranks and diminishing your product without consequence. Right, because it wasn't just morality. It was, we can't afford to lose these people. We need our heroes to play Wimbledon and Davis Cup. We stand to make money off of these events. And a little bit of karma... After 1936, when Fred Perry went pro, Great Britain did not win Davis Cup for 79 years and did not win Wimbledon for 77 years. And one man, a Scot, is responsible for both of those things. I mentioned previously that oftentimes the top amateur would be coming off the back of two or three slams in one year and then get signed to a pro contract. Examples of those, Rod Laver, he won, of course, the calendar year slam in 1962 winning four. Jack Kramer won two in 47. Don Budge, the calendar slam in 38. Tony Trabert, three in 1955. Ashley Cooper, three in 1958. And Frank Sedgman, two in 52. Not an exhaustive list, but just an example. There were more. And it's against this backdrop that Jack Kramer becomes such a villain in the years leading up to the professionalization of tennis and the open era. I read reports of Jack Kramer being written about in Australian newspapers in the mid-50s because why is Jack Kramer here in September to be looking around, buzzing around, sniffing around Ken Rosewall and Lou Hote? Is he going to snatch these two stalwarts of Davis Cup tennis and beacons of Australian tennis? Initially, he was only able to get Rosewall and Lou Hode held off for a little while longer, eventually going on to win a whole bunch of slams before he himself turning professional. But there was really no resisting Jack Kramer and the money he was throwing at you. We're talking about anywhere from seventy-five dollars to $125,000 in the mid-1950s, when, save for under-the-table payments, you're getting per diems from your national tennis organization to play at these amateur tournaments. Like the comparison to say it's lopsided is not even doing it justice. These were people who were starting young families. They had kids to raise. Tennis travel is expensive. You're sacrificing being away from your family for what? Right. You're seeing people win Wimbledon and earning $20 per diem. We have Nancy Ritchie winning the 1968 French Open. And because she was an amateur, she didn't win any money. She said she... (laughs) She collected $27 per day for her per diem. And even then she had to fight to get that from the US Federation. Right. The one player who did resist, and he reaps the benefit of it now, is Roy Emerson. He stayed on the amateur circuit and he won his 12 slam titles. And now 
he remains in the conversation for GOAT. When, interestingly enough, he played on the Grand Slam circuit at a time when it was so depleted. Rod Laver wasn't there. Rosewall wasn't there. Pancho Gonzalez wasn't there. So many of the absolute best players in the world were not playing at the Grand Slams while Roy Emerson won his 12 titles. And that's just the T. Right. But uh, it's a big reason why you don't hear him bandied about as a GOAT. Even though for many years watching tennis, I was like, who is this Roy Emerson guy? And how does he have so many titles? And nobody's saying he's the greatest. You know, Borg and Laver were always considered GOATs before him. And it's because, like, Ken Rosewall was winning 14 pro slams while Emerson was out here in the amateurs winning all these majors. We heard of Emerson when Sampras was trying to break his record. Right. But even then, people were still having these conversations. Well, even if Sampras gets to 13, is he the GOAT or is it still Labor because he won the calendar year Grand Slam twice? Or is it Agassi at that time? Because he's won eight, Mm. but he's won them on all surfaces, as well as the Olympic gold medal. The discussion of men's GOAT was an entirely different conversation before the rise of the big three. Right. Which has just wiped this all off the map completely. (laughs) Bill Tilden was actually considered the greatest of all time for probably a good 40, 50 years. Won all those U.S. Open titles, finished with 10 Grand Slams on the amateur level, played for so long into his 40s on the pro level. It's hard not to believe that his stature in the annals of tennis history has been diminished because of his run-ins with the law, specifically his being arrested for, I don't know how you'd call it in today's terminology, but soliciting minors, young boys. Right. In that time, as you can imagine, that's something that the tennis establishment would want to run far from. He was an undeniable champion. Those who watched him, Jack Kramer, Ellsworth Fines, all those players of that era all spoke of him as being possibly the greatest that they'd ever seen. Because they weren't looking at it through a lens of how many amateur slam titles you've won. They were looking at it based on what they actually played against and what they could see on the tennis court. We've hinted at the the relative quality of amateur versus pro tennis. Perhaps this is something that you can get into a little bit more here. One example that I found was a first-person narrative from Lou Hode, who went pro in 1959. In 56, he was one match away from winning the calendar year Grand Slam. He was the runner-up at the U.S. Open. He won Wimbledon in 56 and 57. Jack Kramer lured him onto the pro tour and told him, listen, you're the best on the amateur level. You can beat anyone on this pro tour. You'll be able to beat Pancho Gonzalez, who at that time was undisputedly the best player in the world. Immediately, Hode started losing in 1959 when he went pro and losing badly. And he lost his first nine matches straight and finally snapped that losing streak against Ken Rosewall. More embarrassingly for him was at that time the tour started in Australia. So he was losing as the challenger, as the next best thing on home soil. And you see this again and again when the top amateurs go pro. Rod Laver, one of the GOATs, goes pro after winning his Grand Slam in 1962 and lost to his countryman Ken Rosewall 11 matches to two. 
1963, his level was clearly well below the level of the pros because these guys were the best, but they were also playing the best week in and week out. This was like an ATP World Tour Finals every week. Quoted by Kim Chapin in Sports Illustrated, one of the leading tennis reporters of the time, Laver said, I knew I was playing badly. I don't know what it was. After 1962 and the slam and everything, I guess I felt there was nothing else left. I played five tournaments in December before the challenge round and won just one, and I shouldn't have won that. Newcomb and Roach beat me, and they were just kids. In the amateurs, especially my last two years, there just weren't that many good players around, and I could build up slowly to the last two or three rounds of a tournament, and everything would be okay. But that Australian tour, it was like playing a final every day. So this is Rod Laver, in many people's eyes, the GOAT, up until this Big Three era, saying that his 1962 calendar year Grand Slam was not really that hard. No. Or less difficult than his first year as a pro. So this is the context that we have to view these GOAT discussions. It is really, really difficult to compare these eras because tennis simply didn't make sense back then. And one of the things that we want to make clear from this episode is that there are a handful of players, specifically on the men's side, who get lost to the annals of history because we are so wrapped up in slam tallies now. While Rod Laver was winning four slams in one year in 1962, Ken Rosewall was out here winning pro slams on his side of the fence that essentially amount to nothing. Right. I, I mean, who cares about the Wembley Championships now? But you look at the draws to some of these tournaments and it's, it's crazy. And you see the names who won them repeatedly. Pancho Gonzalez, Ken Rosewall, later Rod Laver, Bobby Riggs in the 40s. Uh, the pedigree is insane. So now you know that tennis for the first half of the 20th century was the Wild West. In the 50s and 60s, this conversation about opening tennis allowing professionals to play in the most prestigious events, is really coming to a head. It had been happening for decades. A lot of folks talking about, well, why can't we do this akin to golf? Golf has figured this out. Why can't we do this here? But the point at which you get the tennis powers that be to agree to this, along with the national federations with Davis Cup in the background, this doesn't really come to a head until the 50s into the 60s. Right. So we know why it's being resisted, but why move to open tennis? What are the factors that make people want to change the way tennis works? A big one is what they view as hypocrisy in tennis. A lot of pros were talking about the idea that amateurs earn money under the table is offensive to them. They called it shamateurism. You see amateurs being quote unquote employed by sporting goods companies throughout the 1950s. Ken Rosewall was still an amateur and was supposedly making $2,500 a year with Slazinger as their promotional man. Another big factor was the fact that people were starting to notice that Grand Slam tournaments were boring. Pa newspapers were writing about weak and unexciting Wimbledons. And so the sheen, the prestige of these big tournaments was wearing a bit thin in the 50s and early 60s. Meanwhile, you have somebody like Jack Kramer getting all this publicity all around the world, able to champion the merits of his professional tour, chief of which being, I have the best players in the world. So how is Wimbledon able to continue to stand on its own as the preeminent tournament in the world when it can't field the best players in the world? 
when its champion is widely believed by the public to not be the best player in the world. Another issue is that tennis players were not able to earn a living playing tennis as an amateur. Even with these promotional opportunities, the under-the-table payments, it still wasn't enough. You weren't supporting a family on this money. In 1959, Pancho Gonzalez says, In tennis, the difference between an amateur and professional player is related to a phantom table. The amateur receives money under it, the professional over it. I love this turn of phrase. I'm so, I, we had to use this. Gonzalez was pro at the time, but he said that a good amateur, the best amateurs, were earning eight to 10000 a year, which you can see is, even in 1959, not a huge income. It's enough maybe to pay your expenses, but it's not supporting your family. Nicola Pietrangeli bragged to anyone who would listen that he doesn't get out of bed for less than $400 a week, which is not a, a fortune. But still, these were players who weren't actually supposed to be earning anything from playing tennis. By the late 50s, both amateurs and pros were suffering. A lot of pros were feeling that they weren't earning what they deserved because Jack Kramer's contracts were extremely restrictive, and the pros are starting to get a little bit oversaturated. At one point, Jack Kramer had 19 professionals signed to his company. Under the framework of his professional tour, there's a hierarchy of who gets paid what. So even though you're one of those 19 players, if you're not the top amateur that's coming into the pro ranks to challenge the champion, you're not getting the biggest cut of the pie. And your future is not certain because you could easily be unseated if you're the champion and then what do you do next? Right. Basically, in tennis, there were so many different factions warring against each other, undermining the kind of profit that could be made from the sport. In the 50s and 60s, tennis is also becoming a less patrician, less country club sport. It's booming on the recreational level. There's more public courts. There are way more high school tennis programs. In the 50s, it was the eighth most popular high school sport, right behind football, which was very surprising to me. And people like Pancho Gonzalez saw tennis becoming more of a people sport, that with this public interest in playing it recreationally, crowds became a little more raucous, a little more into it. It wasn't country club crowds looking back and forth that, you know, if you've ever seen uh, Strangers on a Train, everyone in their country club whites on their best behavior, it was becoming more of a game that anyone could enjoy. Of course, not anyone, but a little bit more working class. We'll talk a little bit more about Pancho Gonzalez at the end of the episode, but damn near everybody who ever spoke about Pancho Gonzalez referred to him as a son of a bitch. <laughs> that he was a mean, miserable person that when he first turned professional, after he had that amateur success, he was an affable guy. But when he went through all the losing and all the trials of trying to, to make a living as a professional tennis player, he is the person who from start to finish, really, in his professional career, saw it all. And he kept Jack Kramer's professional tour going on his sweat and anger. I'm not going to say sweat and tears, his sweat and anger. Yet he did not reap nearly the benefits financially that he believed was owed to him. Right. So in the early 60s, you see open letters from prominent figures in tennis addressing this problem. People in the sporting world knew this was a problem, and there were 10 million solutions presented. There are too many to go through here, and they're not really that interesting. 
Some people like Gonzalez thought there should still be a very clear line between pro and amateur, but the hypocrisy and the corruption was the problem. Other people thought there should be several different categories of players. And throughout the 1960s, the ITF is forced to vote on these things. ILTF at that time. Sorry, yes, the International Lawn Tennis Federation, which becomes the ITF as we know it. Similarly, the US LTA dropped the lawn from their name. In 1960, after Wimbledon, the ILTF held a vote on whether or not to create open tennis tournaments. Sports Illustrated wrote that summer that there is, quote, no apparent opposition to this vote. They were so wrong. The big powers that we know, you know, those Davis Cup powers, UK, US, Australia, France, all voted yes with their 12 votes each. But the motion actually failed by five votes. They underestimated all of the small national federations who were not into open tennis. A lot of the small countries saw no advantage to it because they thought their small tournaments would suffer. They thought that they would have difficulty training players with their facilities to become as good as pro players. So the amateur tour allowed smaller countries to field players against really a field that wasn't as strong as the pros. And this was openly acknowledged. Jack Kramer was excluded from most of these conversations. All the national federations, the ILTF, everybody was having serious discussions about opening tennis. Nobody wanted to talk to Jack Kramer. Everybody resented him. One of the original musketeers of the late 1920s, Jean Boitra from France, was the president of the ILTF at the time, and he was a true believer. He was part of the Coubertin Olympic movement, that school of thought, He had ideas to create like three different classes of players, but even in 1961, his ideas were passé. He knew he was behind the times. Again, in 1967, the ILTF votes for open tennis. Again, it is voted down. This time, the chairman of the All England Club said, you know what, that's just too bad, because Wimbledon is going to be open in 1968. You don't expect Wimbledon to be the vanguard. Imagine that. Imagine that. (laughs) Wimbledon at the forefront of change in tennis. Yes. Chair Herman David of the All England Club brought a vote to the Lawn Tennis Association in December 67, and they took the unconstitutional step to approve and open Wimbledon championships in 1968. In February 1968, the USLTA does the same. They approve open tennis. And so at that time, you have Wimbledon, you have the US Open, they're on board. And if you recall, in those days, the Australian Open wasn't played in January. So in 1968, the four slams were still yet to be played. And so when this happens, the ILTF is kind of sent into a frenzy, a panic. And they said, well, our hands are are tied at this point. We just have to get on board. And so in the spring of 1968, that's when the first Open Slam is held. But before then, the first Open Tournament happens in Bournemouth which is played on hard court, which is actually the old way of saying this weird clay court substance in England. Ken Rosewall, somebody who turned professional in 1956-57, he's been out of the amateur ranks for over a decade, yet he is the player to win the first tournament in the Open era, and he's also the first man to win the first Open Slam tournament at the 1968 French Open. After being a professional for all these years, he still beats Rod Laver in Bournemouth in 1968, and then he goes on to win the French Open final in 1968 as well. Just uh, rewinding for a moment, 
The ILTF actually did consider banning the LTA from the ILTF, briefly. I think they saw the error of their ways. Imagine banning Wimbledon from from the Grand Slam circuit. But there was an emergency meeting, which eventually approved 12 open tournaments in 68, 30 open tournaments in 1969, and then the rest is history. Like, tennis was changed forever. Not that simply. No, no, definitely not. It wasn't just a case of, well, oh, everybody's an, a professional player now. <laughs> we had this litany of absurd classifications at the onset of the open era these arcane categorizations that are so difficult to wrap your head around and that were fleeting they only lasted a few years by 1967 jack kramer's professional circuit had gone belly up it was no longer a sustainable model and there were two new professional organizations that came to the fore the first one being the world championship tennis league and then the National Tennis League. And so by 1968, we see an explosion of amateurs turning professional. And we see for the first time a mass signing of women into the professional ranks, where you have Billie Jean King, Rosie Casals, and a host of others becoming professional ahead of the 1968 Grand Slam season. But they're playing for these two professional organizations. There's a lot of things going on in tennis at this time. People signed to different professional leagues, still playing for their national federation, competing against amateurs. It's all happening. Mm -hmm. Then one professional league would prevent their players from entering a Grand Slam because the other professional league's players were playing. There were instances where you could be a professional player at one Grand Slam, but another Grand Slam wouldn't recognize you and wouldn't pay you prize money. That happened to Margaret Court in 1968. The USTA didn't recognize what they call registered players. So Margaret Court won prize money at Wimbledon that year, but only got this $20 per day per diem at the US Open in the same year. Because registered players were allowed to collect prize money, but still able to maintain amateur status toward being still able to play Davis Cup and Fed Cup. Right. So there were growing pains, and there were also a lot of competing vested interests. It wasn't just evolution, it was, you know, organizations fighting for their piece of the pie. It's not just the national federations, it's not just, at this point, the ILTF, it's these professional leagues as well, trying to maintain their product by saying, well, I'm not going to send my players to the French Open if you're sending your players, because I don't want them competing against right. each other. Right. So, tennis is still a mess. <laughs> yes. All the way up to 1973 when the ATP was formed and the ATP boycotts Wimbledon. That's a subject for another day. But those first five, six, seven years of professional tennis are absolutely wild. You mentioned that some of the top women were signed as pros. Billie Jean King was the first professional woman to sign a pro contract in the open era in 1968 with the National Tennis League. But as the National Tennis League was funded by Lamar Hunt, who was this Texas oil baron, the women were basically abandoned the following year in 69, and shortly after, in 1970, Billie Jean King and the original nine signed this contract with Virginia Slims to form the Virginia Slims Tour and the WTA. Just incredible change was happening so quickly in tennis. That very first open tournament in England at Bournemouth, Billie Jean King and Rosie Casals and all those women signed to the National Tennis League, they didn't play because they essentially found the prize money an insult. It was something like 300 pounds. I assume it was pounds. Maybe it was just dollars <laughs> <laughs> to the champion at this tournament. So they didn't show up. 
So you may ask, we've been talking about it briefly, for what, 45 minutes of this episode, it's been all men all the time. What the hell was going on with women tennis players in the pre-open era? Well, the history of men's tennis is much better documented and it, it has a more rich history during this period uh, for a variety of reasons. Chief among these is that the women didn't have a professional circuit like the men did. So when somebody like Suzanne Longlaw or Pauline Betts turned professional, they weren't turning professional to go tour Australia and the United States for an entire year. They were touring for a one-off string of matches and then that would be it. There were no challengers coming. Women weren't leaving the amateur ranks in the droves that the men were. So even if Suzanne Longlaw were there in 1928 as the one of the biggest sporting stars in the world, not just tennis, who was going to play her? Mm -hmm. Even if she found a, a so-called rival for this one tour, who's coming next? Nobody was going to beat Suzanne Longlaw. Right? So except for maybe Helen Wills Moody. Possibly. But she's not turning professional. And there's just no way to keep women's professional tennis moving. Right. Especially if you see if you look at Langlois, one of the most glamorous and famous professional female tennis players of the first half of the twentieth century. She cannot make a living from playing tennis. If she can't, no one can. And as a result, you see a lot of the, the early tennis greats on the women's side rack up these massive slam totals, right? Helen Wills Moody won 19. Margaret Court, of course, won 13 right before the Open Era. Maureen Connolly winning 9. Langlois winning 8. And consider that a lot of these careers were stopped by world wars. Althea Gibson turned professional in 1958. Clearly the best player in the world, but there was no professional circuit for her to play on. What we ended up seeing from Althea Gibson is that she ends up becoming an opening act for the Harlem Globetrotters against clearly inferior opponents. And she wasn't able to play full matches. They would give her just a set to play to open up for these basketball players. There was no rose wall to her labor. So the net effect is that the product of her as a professional tennis player felt cheap. It felt like a gimmick. And so with no amateur tennis to be able to play in 1958 onwards and opportunities for professional tennis for Gibson drying up quickly, what does she do? She eventually becomes a professional golfer. I feel like this is part of Althea Gibson's story that a lot of folks don't necessarily know. Well, she was actually excellent as a golfer. She was a little bit too old when she made the transition. Mm -hmm. She, uh, I mean, she sang. She yeah. recorded records. She, she wrote a book. What was on the Ed Sullivan show singing? You mentioned Suzanne Longlaw not being able to make money from tennis as the unquestioned best of her time, as one of the greatest stars in the world at that time. And she was quoted as saying, under these absurd and antiquated amateur rulings, only a wealthy person can compete. And the fact of the matter is that only wealthy people do compete. Is that fair? Does it advance the sport? Does it make tennis more popular? Or does it tend to suppress and hinder an enormous amount of tennis talent lying dormant in the bodies of young men and women whose names are not in the social register? I found this to be one of the most telling parts of the research that we did. We'll get to Margaret Court a little bit later on. And one of the things that's talked about her with respect to this ongoing GOAT debate now with Serena Williams is that she didn't have the level of competition that professionals have now. 
folks didn't go to Australia to play the Australian Open. The quality of our opponent was not the same. This got me thinking, well damn, how many women in particular were discouraged from becoming tennis players because not only was it frowned upon to be athletic, not only was it unlikely that you'd make a career out of it, but you also had to contend with the societal expectations of you as a would-be mother, as a nurturer, as a home-taker, as a wife. Like the, the obstacles to overcome to become a champion women's tennis player up until very recently was prohibitive of really having a talent pool that could give somebody comfort in knowing that you played against the absolute best in the world. Mm-hmm. Right. And beyond the very obvious problems of women being pressured into not having careers, into having children and supporting families, sport was frowned upon as a 20, 30-year-old woman. Beyond that, there was actually no infrastructure that you could play in. Like, there was no way to make a living for most women. Langlois made a whole heap of money after she went professional, but that wasn't sustained. And there was no organized tour for her to play in. And so you see from like the 30s into the 60s, there was literally no professional tour for women until those four women signed with the National Tennis League in 1968. So you think about that's 40, 30, 40 years of top female athletes who didn't really have the opportunity to make money off of their talent. And they were only able to showcase their talent because of the status in society that they came from. Yes, correct. One of the things that we found, I should say you found specifically, (laughs) that you wanted to talk about was with respect to this GOAT debate on the women's side, our research, your research, leads you to believe that Margaret Court gets kind of a bad rap. Well, it's complicated. I don't want to put that on the record. It's complicated by a number of things. The fact that she's such a repugnant figure in her dotage that she's very difficult to root for now. Really, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, she's kind of a nasty person. She was difficult to root for back then. (laughs) She was actively undermining Billie Jean's efforts to get the women's pro tour started. She said... She didn't care about equal prize money. She was there to get hers, go home, be a mother and a wife, and that was it. She said she was not a women's liber, and she never asked for equal prize money. She was also a proponent of apartheid. She thought that the South Africans had figured out the race problem. So, <laughs> it, looking at Margaret Court, objectively, is extremely difficult. But what I found in kind of studying the pre-open era of tennis is that this legacy is extremely complicated. I've said it before that Margaret Court was a superior athlete, is literally the most decorated champion in tennis history men men or women now the fact that she's won the most titles does that mean she's the best i have no idea i tend to disagree but she achieved these things and we can't take them away why i say it's complicated is that in the 1960s when she won 13 slams there was no pro tour for women you say 1960s but before the open era that's what you're referencing yes She won 13 slams before the Open Era in 1968. There was no pro tour for women. So you have to assume that the best women who were playing were were playing on the amateur tour. Should they have chosen to travel to respective slam tournaments? 
Exactly. And so this is where it gets even more difficult to look at her legacy and compare it to modern players. Because she won seven Australian Open titles, seven straight, from 1960 to 1966. And I know people have done this before, but if you look at the draws, it's uh, it's wild, right? In 1960, when she was known as Margaret Smith, there were 32 women in the draw. She beat the great, the legend, Brazilian Maria Bueno in the final. Okay. 61, there were 44 players. Every last one of those 44 players were Australian. In 1962, 48 players in the draw, 45 were Australian. In 1963, 39 players, 36 were Australian. And in those three finals, she beat Lehane in all three of those finals. Maybe I'm an idiot for, have never, for having never heard of Lehane before. Uh, I, a fellow Australian, I, I don't know. In 1964, there were only 27 players in the Australian Championships. Two were not Australian, and she defeats Turner in the final. But in 1965, there were 52 players with a much stronger draw, with Maria Bueno, Durr, Billie Jean King, and Ann Jones. Eventually, Margaret Court beating Maria Bueno in the final. And in 66, she beats uh, Nancy Ritchie in a walkover in the final. If you look at all those pre-open era Grand Slams, those 13, she beat Maria Bueno in four finals. She beat Billie Jean Moffat King in two. And the other seven were like, okay. (laughs) Some of them were clearly hindered by the fact that very few women went down to Australia because they weren't earning any money. And frankly, the prestige of the tournament is nowhere near where it is now. So I think we have to look at those few years before the open era on the women's side as as complex you know there is an argument that women's sport was hindered because the best athletes in the world not all of them could afford to play tennis you know margaret court was the best athlete she was the best tennis player of the 1960s nobody is is disputing that but in 2019 so many more people have the opportunity to play this sport it's just impossible to compare we've made the argument that the pre-open era draws from Margaret Court were depleted. That could be an asterisk. That said, she beat the top players when she did have to play them. She beat Billie Jean King a bunch of times. Yes. She beat Maria Bueno a bunch of times. She continued winning big into the 70s. The longevity of her career is stunning in terms of how much she won at every turn of her career after taking two breaks to have have a child. She came back both times and continued to win. After stumbling in that first year of open tennis in 1968, she wins three slams in 69, wins the calendar year Grand Slam in 1970, and that included six straight from the U.S. Open 69 to Australia 71. It is hard to argue with those numbers. I think that we have to understand those 13 pre-open slams as separate and apart. If you are to make the case for Margaret Court, The words of Kim Chapin from Sports Illustrated may be instructive. He said, To accuse anybody of immortality is a tricky business. Tennis has no incontrovertible statistics with which to measure. Few of the candidates ever played against one another in their prime. The one criterion that does hold up, however, is dominance of the game in a particular era. And it is for passing this test that the most familiar nominees can be rattled off. Gonzalez in the 50s, Jack Kramer in the late 40s, Ellsworth Vines, Fred Perry, and Don Budge, each succeeding the other in the 30s, at least one of the French musketeers, Henri Cochet, René Lacoste, and Jean Borotra in the late 20s. 
Bill Tilden before that, and Australia's Sir Norman Brooks in the years prior to the World War I. That lens at looking at the greats of tennis can be applied to Margaret Court here. Potentially. <laughs> because of her era, she was the unquestioned best. There are just so many mitigating factors to make a comparison across eras. That said, she ain't the GOAT. <laughs> we talked about Margaret Court. Other players who look quite a bit better in retrospect, who you may not hear about often, Ellsworth Vines, whose peers described him as one of the greatest players who ever lived. And especially, I mean, the name has been bandied about a lot in this episode, but Richard Pancho Gonzalez, who a lot of tennis hipsters believe is the GOAT. That, based on the eye test of people who were there, that nobody had ever played like him. My generation grew up with hearing about Sampras's serve. Folks younger than me, if they exist, they grew up hearing about Federer's serve. The serve that we heard about first and foremost, uh, say for Bill Tilden, was Pancho Gonzalez's. It was taken to be the the perfect serve to emulate. And was was really taught to many pros for decades later. Gonzalez is such an interesting figure. He's such an American figure, right? His father was from Mexico. As he, the story goes, walked to the United States 800 miles, and they settled in L.A., Gonzalez grew up in South Central LA, like Serena and Venus Williams. He was known as a troublemaker. He went to prison. When he got out of prison, he went into the US Navy and was dishonorably discharged. <laughs> and shortly after that, he goes to the US Championships as an amateur and wins. It was ranked like 19 in the US in the amateurs a shock winner, and then goes on to repeat his title the following year. In 1955, after having clawed his way back from career exile in tennis, he becomes a champion for Jack Kramer's barnstorming tours. And he finds himself in a situation, I alluded to it before, where he's keeping this tour afloat, but he's not making money. Jack Kramer is out here building in incentives to contracts for Lou Hode to beat Pancho Gonzalez. Not just because that would be good for his tour, but because he hates Pancho Gonzalez so much. Like, he wants him gone. <laughs> right? Uh, and so, Gonzalez is existing in this fraught professional environment, and he eventually goes to court and sues Jack Kramer to get out of that contract. And because Kramer had him under contract for seven years. And the court eventually was like, well, I'm siding with Jack Kramer, you're stuck. Jack Kramer, for his part, I don't think we mentioned, was considered like the player of his generation. Yes. Like a lot of people, his Grand Slam count was unimpressive, like Gonzalez's, but he pioneered what they called the big game. Constant serve in volley on every single point was seen as the first player to do that consistently. And for the first five or so years that he was on the professional circuit, he was the champion that was undefeated. Mm -hmm. So Gonzalez was miserable for a lot of this contract with Jack Kramer, but started to beat everybody. Lou Hode, Ken Rosewall, Olmedo, Jimeno, his best friend Pancho Segura. But as he got older, he started <laughs> throwing these massive tantrums. You might call McEnroveian. He started taunting fans and umpires, engaging in gamesmanship, 
And so this becomes part of his legacy that he, you called him, uh, a lot of his peers called him a real son of a bitch, which is really like the 50s way of saying a mean motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Bre- uh, everybody knew him as that. He was difficult to get along with. But there you see this incredible respect from his peers, people speaking in such celestial words describing his game. I think Gussie Moran described him as a, a god patrolling his kingdom. S.L. Price, who wrote this excellent SI story about him, said, A serve so powerful it inspired cries to remake the sport. You think about the longevity of Pancho Gonzalez's career, it's wild. And not only did he win his amateur slams, he then carried professional tennis on his back, and then wanting to stick around for, or I should say come back for the start of open tennis, at 41, he plays Wimbledon in 1969 and ends up playing the longest recorded match in tennis history until it was broken by John Isner and Nick Lamau a few years ago. Five hours and 12 minutes. He beat Charlie Passarell in round one. The match stretched over two days. He saved seven match points. This is a 41-year-old playing one of the best players in the world at the time. And he, I mean, he looked a mess. Like, he was underweight. He was out of shape. He was fasting. He had this weird idea that he shouldn't drink water because it was hindering his athletic ability. He shouldn't have won that match. I said longest match. I should say longest Wimbledon match. Right. After Wimbledon, he persisted into the early 70s. He's in his early 40s. He beats Rosewell, Newcomb, Stan Smith, Arthur Ashe, beat Rod Laver twice in 1970. He beat Jimmy Connors in Jimmy Connors' best year as a pro, 1973. And what I did not know, maybe I uh, am super uneducated. You are, because I feel like this is a pretty well-known part of tennis. Was so enmeshed in the Agassi team. First coached Andre's older sister, Rita, fell in love. They moved in together when Rita was 20 and Pancho was like 53. They got married. They had a child. Andre Agassi's brother-in-law, Pancho Gonzalez. Mike Agassi said repeatedly that he wanted to kill Pancho Gonzalez. Gonzalez won the U.S. Pro Championships eight times, the Wembley Pro four times, was ranked number one for seven years as a professional. As an amateur, he only won two U.S. Open. So again, if we were to look at slam tallies as the sole or most important metric, Pancho Gonzalez doesn't even register a blip on the radar no, with two slams. He's Leighton Hewitt. Wow. With two majors. But his contribution to tennis is staggering. Uh, an interesting tidbit here is that in 1994, when Pancho Gonzalez was diagnosed with cancer, he and his frenemy, Jack Kramer, somehow reached the separate piece. And Jack Kramer and his wife moved in with Pancho to help take care of him in his final days. You have to wonder whether a lot of that animosity was trumped up to sell the tour between the two of them. It's possible. Sure. Maybe. I'm sure a lot of it was real. You don't just (laughs) file a... (laughs) You don't just catch a case on a whim. (laughs) Pancho went to court for a reason. (laughs) Mike actually almost caught a case. Yeah. There are three players I want to talk about briefly not because i consider them to be the greatest of anything but because their stories kind of uh, struck a chord or presented something that i found interesting in the pre-open era maureen Connolly, you may have heard her name before between 1951 and 1954 she won nine slam singles titles 
easily the best player in the world at the time. In 1954, she suffered a freak accident at the age of 19 that ended her career. She was riding her horse and then some cement truck came by and created some noise that startled the horse and she got pinned between the truck and the horse and injured her her hand. She had made plans to turn professional in 1954, so this didn't stop her from adding to her tally of nine slam titles, but it did end whatever chance she had of making money on the professional circuit. She also died really young, at the age of 34, in 1969 from cancer. She had been battling cancer for three to four years. A tragically short but successful life and tennis career. We've talked about Ellsworth Vines. He was world number one for four years in the 1930s, won three slams, turned pro in 1934. He, like Althea Gibson, became a professional golfer after his professional tennis career, even winning three tournaments on the PGA Tour. He's also considered by many to be the absolute best player of the pre-open era. Pauline Betts, somebody I'd never heard of, probably shame on me. She won five slam titles, a further three runner-ups. The USLTA revoked her amateur status in 1947 because they'd heard whispers that she was considering turning professional. And that suspension was for an indefinite period of time. So she said, fuck it, I'm going to turn professional anyway. However, she was only able to play two pro tours because of the paucity of professional opportunities that we talked about on this episode. In 1947, she played a string of matches against Sarah Palfrey Cook. And then in 1951, she played Gussie Moran. Gussie Moran, if if that name sounds familiar, she's the one who created the stir when Ted Tinling added a bit of lace to her bloomers when she played at Wimbledon. And it, it just, it was a tidal wave of indecency. <laughs> and it should be said that a lot of Pauline Betts's prime was taken from her because most of the majors during World War II were canceled. Yes. All this is just a blip on the rich history of tennis. There's so much more that could have been said. There are many more episodes that could be done on stuff before the open era began in 1968. One of the things that I found particularly interesting was the way in which women were written about. It should come as no surprise that it was pretty damn sexist. Oh, indeed. Can we just read one of them? Sure. This name that keeps coming up again, Kim Chapin. I, we don't know if it is, Kim, it, is a, Kim is a, a man. man. Oh, okay. You're tempted to think, looking back at these bylines, that, wow, there were so many prominent women tennis writers at the time with <laughs> jobs for Sports Illustrated and the New York Times. Kim Chapin was a man who wrote for Sports Illustrated. And there was Alison Danzig for the New York Times who covered tennis for like 40 years. Alison and Kim. Yeah, Alison was also a man. <laughs> yes. So... In Billie Jean King's last amateur tournament, she plays Nancy Ritchie in the semifinals. It's at Madison Square Garden, and it's called the Garden Challenge Trophy Tennis Tournament. God, there's just so much in this one piece by Kim Chapin. You have written here on the on the article, wow, on this one little paragraph, where he says, On one side of the net was Billie Jean Moffat King, 24, the myopic pepper pot who is totally and absolutely dedicated to the proposition that Billie Jean Moffat King is a number one tennis player in the world, which she is. You have to hate to lose, she has often said. That's why I'm on top. 
That is just such a great sentence. I read that and wish that I could write a sentence like that. That's the good part about this article. <laughs> <laughs> because it devolves into some just crazy sexist shit. He goes on to say that their only condescension to femininity were the tiny blue pompons Billie Jean wore on the back of her sneakers and the orange headband that Nancy wore instead of her traditional Australian flap hat. Their only condescension to femininity. <laughs> yes. They deigned to be feminine by wearing blue pom-poms. <laughs> he goes on to refer to them as girls all throughout the article. He says of Billie Jean, Billie Jean, who has opinions on just about everything and who is a longtime advocate of open tennis, was, despite her loss to Miss Ritchie, ecstatic about the professionals, has opinions on just about <laughs> everything. That It is so fascinating to read this now. This is an article written in 1968. They had no idea the storm that was coming from Billie Jean King. I think this is a good way to end the episode. Billie Jean is quoted talking about the difficulties of her as a tennis player making a living. She says the amateur game is completely filled with hypocrisy. What they ought to do is throw out all the officials and start again. It's a burden to play amateur tennis. I quit college three years ago to be number one. I knew I couldn't do it any other way. I made it, but what do I get? I came home last year after winning Wimbledon and somebody asked if I played Davis Cup. I can't even get a credit card. How can I tell them I've got a job? I do now. I'm just going to make more as a pro. The only reason we can get credit cards is because they assume my husband, Larry, a law student at the University of California, is going to make a bundle later on. So she's out here as the top player in the world and can't get a credit card. Thanks for tolerating uh, kind of our, our nerddom. Our indulgence. Yeah. This is, it was a welcome reprieve for us from the week in, week out coverage of tennis. We really wanted to take a break and pull back and... and kind of study this sport that we love in a different way. Uh, understand where where it's come from, where it's gone. Especially since we talk about the open era and the, the ramifications of titles before and after all the time. Right. Not just us, but tennis commentators, just fans on Twitter. And I don't know that we always have a full understanding. I know I didn't. Yeah. Of all that entailed and what went on. It may not change your opinion of things with respect to certain things, cough cough margaret court but <laughs> it's still it's still helpful to have a more fully formed idea of the history of this wonderful sport i hope that we will be doing more episodes that are a little bit broader in in subject and not wedded to this weekly tournament schedule it is exhausting and i can't imagine being a player playing in the fall but for us we needed to pull back can you imagine being a professional tennis player in the 1950s, playing hundreds of tennis matches against the same person? Mm -hmm. Who's better than you? Day in, day out, <laughs> week in, week out. <laughs> what, what a time to have been alive. Thanks for listening. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. The podcast is at The Body Serve on Twitter, on Instagram. You can find us on iTunes whatever podcast catcher you use, and also on Spotify. Thanks for listening. Till next time.